Hier komen we in vreemd. Welcome to Red Flag Radio, the podcast where we talk about politics, history and theory from a revolutionary socialist perspective. I'm Emma Norton. And I'm Chloe Rafferty. And we're recording this podcast today on stolen Gadigal land. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This episode, we're talking about the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. Um, Earlier, we spoke with Tom Bramble. Tom is a leading member of Socialist Alternative and an author of many books and articles about Marxist theory and labor history. Um, He's the co-author of The Fight for Workers' Power, Revolution and Counter-Revolution in the 20th Century. He's lived in South Africa and has ties with the revolutionary left um, in South Africa. Um, We spoke to Tom about the exploitation of the black working class and the radical waves um, of workers' activity, which led to the downfall of apartheid and a near-revolutionary situation. But first we wanted to talk about international solidarity. The struggle against apartheid in South Africa has been a real touchstone of the Palestine solidarity movement. Lots of activists rightfully describe the experience of Palestinians as apartheid, and we've had whole episodes drawing out that experience. From the racist laws within Israel's 1948 territories, the experience of segregation, harassment, of extrajudicial murder and summary arrest in the occupied West Bank, and the horror today in Gaza. The oppression of the Palestinians is, if anything, worse in the sense that they have been robbed of the key social power which black workers in South Africa had. Um, The exploitation they experience in the workplace that goes along with the ability to strike and cause economic damage to the ruling class. This is something that Palestinians have been deprived of. Israel has been very careful not to become overly reliant on Palestinian workers. So the comparison isn't just one of oppression, it's a touchstone for resistance. The history of the international campaign of solidarity against South African apartheid has inspired today's pro-Palestine activists. The Palestine solidarity demonstrations and acts of civil disobedience stand in a really important tradition of international solidarity against war imperialism and apartheid. And there's a really rich history of protests against South African apartheid, which we can draw on today. So international solidarity was important in politically isolating South Africa in the final years of apartheid. Uh, There's a lot of absolute bullshit revision about um, this history. Actually, for most of the history of apartheid, uh, Western governments backed it um, in the UK, US and Australia. And lots of Western politicians who cried crocodile tears when uh, Nelson Mandela died actually called him a terrorist when he was um, in jail under the apartheid regime. So Tony Abbott actually famously campaigned um, against fundraising for the ANC at Sydney University. Um, He actually labelled the African National Congress uh, a terrorist organisation, as did most of the political establishment in the 1970s. Yeah, there's a real rewriting of history going on there. Uh, It was always left-wing activists, socialists and the left of the trade union movement around the world which championed the anti-apartheid struggle and often in the face of huge state opposition and repression. So one really cool story about this resistance is uh, in 1971... Uh, the Springbok Tour. The Springboks were the all-white South African rugby union team and massive protests which were really militant disrupted their games whenever they attempted to go on tour around Australia and New Zealand. 
Uh, and famously, this racist team, which was all white and banned uh, black people from participating, could not step foot on a commercial plane because the pilots actually went on strike. So they ended up having to charter a private plane. They also couldn't stay at a hotel because the front uh, staff, the cleaners and other hotel workers went on strike. Basically, everywhere they went in this country and in New Zealand, they were refused service. Yeah, one of the most famous moments of that 1971 tour uh, was when one of the leaders of the Builders Labourers Federation, um, a union we've talked about a lot on this podcast, uh, one of their leaders, Bob Pringle, um, actually broke into the football pitch before a Springbok game uh, was due to play and attempted to saw the goalposts in half. Um, and there were, you know, pitch invasions by activists attempting to stop the games from going ahead. Uh, and in Melbourne, a riot actually broke out between anti-apartheid activists and racist right-wing fans of the Springboks. Um, and all of this culminated during that 1971 tour uh, in Joe Bjorki-Peterson, um, the right-wing premier at the time of Queensland, uh, declaring a state of emergency uh, when the Springbok team came to Queensland, you know, the deep north. Uh, but this uh, state of emergency, which uh, Peterson called to try and uh, protect the games, actually triggered a general strike in Queensland. Yeah, and workers around the world were able to use their social power, particularly in key industries, to punish South Africa and show solidarity with black South Africans. So, for example, dock workers and seafarers in Australia helped to impose an embargo on oil and weapons to South Africa. And in 1977, the British Union of Postal Workers even refused to handle post to or from South Africa. The international solidarity movement called on civil society to boycott apartheid South Africa. All cultural, sporting and most importantly economic activity with South Africa was targeted for boycott to put pressure on the regime. And this is the direct inspiration for much of the international solidarity with Palestine today. So the boycotts, divestments and sanctions campaign, also known as BDS, was directly inspired by those actions to punish South Africa for its racism. So it's really important to learn both the positive lessons from that struggle um, as well as the limitations. And the most important lesson, I think, is that masses of ordinary people can make history. Uh, ordinary people can dismantle systems of oppression and exploitation, even against seemingly insurmountable odds. So apartheid was woven into the fabric of South African capitalism. It was extremely lucrative to international capitalism as well. Um, and the South African working class uh, played that key role um, in overthrowing apartheid. But as Tom will unpack, the struggle continues in South Africa today because apartheid was overturned and that's fantastic, but capitalism was left intact. And with that, massive racism and inequality actually persists against black South Africans today, despite the end of formal apartheid and the existence of a small layer of black politicians and capitalists. Our across the world. Hi, Tom. Welcome to Red Flag Radio. Hello, Chloe. Good to be here. Um, well, uh, excellent to have you on to talk about uh, the history of the uh, struggle against South African apartheid. I know, Tom, um, for you, this was a really formative political question. Can you tell me why? Yeah, well, I got involved in politics in Britain in the late 1970s, and the question of apartheid was really a dividing line uh, in British politics. Basically, anyone who's halfway progressive took the side of the anti-apartheid struggle. Now today, 
uh, you listen to politicians, they all kind of say, oh, of course, you know, Nelson Mandela, we all love Nelson Mandela. You know, thank goodness South Africa is free of apartheid. We're always against racial injustice. In fact, a substantial section of the British uh, political uh, ruling class and the media was thoroughly pro-apartheid. Uh, and uh, that was uh, the case with the Thatcher government, which was in office in the 1980s. Uh, the Reagan government in the United States always did their best to try and defend apartheid, just in the same way, in fact, as they defend Israel to this day. Uh, so the kind of the history seems to be that, oh, we're always against apartheid. It was just this kind of polecat country that was just total anathema to the rest of the world. In fact, the anti-apartheid struggle uh, in the West, uh, especially in countries like Britain uh, and the United States, was one in which there was two sides. There was a racist, you know, pro-capitalist wing, and then there was the anti-racist and in some cases anti-capitalist and socialist wing. Uh, and so the question about which side you took was not just a question about what you thought about South Africa. It was also about the question about fighting racism and fighting capitalism in your own country. Uh, that is, all the forces that were responsible for mass unemployment, for attacks on the welfare state, uh, for police racism against black people, also all backed apartheid. And so for us, we saw the anti-apartheid struggle as being something we were both solidarised with as a basic question of international solidarity, but also something we saw as part of our struggle, that it was our government backing up the apartheid regime. And so um, we, we, we regarded that then as being a, a, fund of, a litmus test, if you like, about uh, where you stood uh, in politics in the West and also where you stood on basic questions of international solidarity, uh, because... As I say, today it seems to be the case that you know, everyone was against apartheid, but I can assure you that was not the case. Uh, we had to fight against people who said that you, you back the ANC, you back terrorism. Now, how does that sound familiar? Isn't this what people say about the Palestinians today? Tom, I know that um, uh, Tony Abbott is an example of that. Um, I think he was actually prime minister when Nelson Mandela passed away. Um, but in his youth, when he was a rabid conservative at Sydney University, um, he would go around attacking the left for being terrorists, for supporting the ANC, that kind of thing. And it was also interesting to be a, a basic question of the Cold War. That this was a time when the world was still divided between the Soviet camp and the American camp. And the whole argument was the ANC took power, it'd be communism would, would run rampant through Southern Africa. So again, it seemed to be something that was part of a, if you like, a, it was a world question. Uh, and even though, you know, and so basically you had, it, it, it was pitched as, you know, de democratic freedoms against communist authoritarianism. Uh, and in much the way, same way as the Joe Biden administration kind of says the world is divided today between American democracy uh, versus authoritarianism. Uh, we had an earlier version of that back in the 70s and 80s about being against capitalism versus communism. And we had to support the capitalists because they were for freedom, of course. I know that, Tom, you had some experience uh, when you are in the UK when you were quite young uh, with anti-apartheid solidarity actions. Do you want to tell our listeners a bit about that? I went to a – I got a scholarship to go to a private school. Actually, the same school that Nigel Farage went on to attend about three years after I left. Uh, and this school, being a kind of a snobby kind of elite uh, private school, was very keen to uh, show its loyalties and it arranged for a white South African uh, – uh, schoolboys team from Cape Town to tour uh, and play at uh, my school, Dulwich College. Uh, and so the anti-apartheid movement in London declared that they were going to protest and uh, disrupt this game when uh, the South African team arrived at my school. And, and we did that. I quite remember coming in on the Monday morning, seeing graffiti spray painted on the school walls uh, and the teachers being totally shocked. I remember wearing a badge I made up myself saying boycott this 
Bishop's School was what it was called. I, you know, I remember the maths teacher saying, take that badge off. So it was in, in my own very formative way, at the age of sort of 16 or so, it was a little bit of kind of a minor act of rebellion uh, that uh, we saw ourselves as part of a broader international movement. And then, Tom, I know later you've you've written um, about the South African um, workers' movement and you've spent some time in South Africa. Can you tell our listeners a bit about um, your experience of the South African left in the workers' movement? Yeah, sure. I mean, because of my interest in, in apartheid, when I had the opportunity in late 1990s, this is after apartheid has fallen, uh, between 1997 and 2000, I went to South Africa three times and spent about six months in total there. And uh, I went as part of you know, doing university research. Uh, I used to be a, a university lecturer. Uh, and my project really was one of um, interviewing people who've been involved in the struggles of the 80s and 90s, the, uh, the metal workers, which is one of the leading unions in South Africa, which was known for its uh, independent kind of pro-working class stance uh, and um, had the most developed uh, rank and file structures, uh, local committees, uh, as I say, uh, greater degree of democracy than was apparent in most unions. I went to interview a lot of the people who've been involved in those struggles, who've been involved in the, in the strikes, the sleep-ins they had of the factories, that is the occupations, uh, the kind of uh, demonstrations they were part of. I also met people who were involved, for example, in things like the Soweto uh, process in 1976. And so this is a, uh, you know, you go from Australia uh, in 1997, so meetings with shop stewards in, in industrial districts in Johannesburg, and they've got the raised fist there, and they're singing the struggle songs, and they're talking about comrade this and comrade that and the fight for socialism. This, needless to say, was a very different kind of culture than what you'd experience in Australian unions at that time, and even more so to this day. So this was a real going to May Day protests uh, held in stadiums with thousands of uh, uh, black uh, metal workers, you know, re- f- fists raised in the air, as I say, singing struggle songs, toy-toying, dancing, you know, through the streets, uh, demonstrating their defiance in the way they had done. This is even after the fall of apartheid, maintaining those traditions uh, in that union uh, of struggle and defiance. So that was, uh, I wrote, a, edit, edited a book, uh, you know, with contributions from many people who have been involved in these struggles, either as maybe some cases union organisers, sometimes as intellectuals who'd been uh, throwing themselves in the struggle in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and uh, it's up online. There's still people are referring to it to this day because it was very important, uh, uh, captured a very important period in South African history. Yeah, we'll be sure to put uh, a link to that in our show notes, um, which listeners can find. Well, yeah, some of that... Um, just history of the radicalism of the South African black workers, both in the struggle against apartheid and after, I think um, you really don't get a picture of from any kind of liberal accounts that we might access here in Australia. So I want to uh, talk a bit about that. But I guess to kind of start off with, let's just talk about what apartheid was. Can you tell us a bit like why do d- did Marxists then and now argue it was a product of capitalism? Yeah, sure. Well, apartheid is taken from the Afrikaans word um, separation. Uh, and it basically meant a system of, I mean, we now think about apartheid about being walls and so forth. There were no walls uh, in South Africa, but there were legal walls. Uh, the, the vast majority of the land was basically appropriated by the white people, who basically like the white uh, capitalists in particular, who was essentially divided between two sections. There was a farming capital uh, and, and then there was a mining capital. And then later on became the manufacturing capital. And these blocks of capital essentially controlled the country. Uh, and what they wanted, uh, they had obviously a white population, a minority of the population, about, um, I think about 10 to 12% of the population were whites. Uh, and they were a, a labor aristocracy. 
they were very much bought off by the uh, apartheid system. They had very high wages. Uh, and when I say labour aristocracy, I don't just mean high wages. They had black servants in the houses. So we're talking about that kind of layer of the population. So you had a, a thin layer of whites who had immense privileges, even some of the workers. As I say, you had working class households where you had people who, in that situation uh, had black servants in the houses uh, and lived in you know, uh, streets and uh, areas of the cities which were well maintained, sanitation, schooling, hospitals, healthcare, the whole lot, uh, jobs, permanent jobs, skilled jobs. And then you had the majority of the population essentially were confined to third class status. Uh, they were basically um, segregated into three groups. First of all, you had the people living in the so-called homelands. This was essentially the rural, backward, economically, uh, reservoir of labour, of, of um, black families, comprising usually people who were grandmothers, mothers, children, the, the disabled and the sick, the people who could not be exploited in the factories and the mines, but nonetheless who would look after um, workers you know, during their infancy and adolescence before they went to work. Uh, and essentially, the apartheid regime tried to call these, if you like, nation states and said the blacks belong to these areas. And that's really where they belong. And that's where they have the right to live. And then there were the blacks who essentially lived in under sufferance because they were needed for the mines, because they were needed for the factories in two other areas. In the cities, like in Johannesburg, which sits astride a, a huge um, gold uh, reef, uh, and to a lesser extent coal, the miners were housed in barracks. So they're really primitive sheds, basically. They weren't allowed to bring their wives or children, uh, and they were uh, taken for, as migrants from the rural areas uh, under contracts that might be last 12 or 9 months, and then they go back to the so-called homelands, uh, perhaps for a brief period for you know, convalescence or recuperation or whatever, then back into the huts, where essentially they lived in a, under a, essentially a kind of a military regime where they were uh, denied any rights, uh, where they were paid appallingly, where they were not allowed to have independent unions, where they, of course, lacked totally the right to vote. Uh, and they had to show passbooks, which is a book they had to carry around with them to show they uh, had certain um, where they could stay in the city. That is not really much to go beyond the mine or, or the hostel. And then the third category, people you had were people living in the townships. Listeners might well have heard of a Soweto, or the Cape Flats, in the case of Cape Town. These were what became vast, sprawling townships. That is, they were kind of slums in many areas. In some cases, they were slightly more substantial housing. But these were, again, reservoirs of labour on the outskirts of the town, uh, of Cape Town, of the industrial areas, uh, Durban, uh, Johannesburg, where essentially the capitalists could draw the labour from, but come five o'clock, the workers all had to go back to the townships. They weren't allowed to stay overnight in the cities. And so, again, they had to carry passbooks. If they didn't have a passbook saying they had the right to be in a city over certain hours, they could be arrested, they could be sent back, sent back. In some cases, they'd never been to the homeland. They could be sent to the homeland, the backward rural areas, uh, and uh, totally disciplined. So you had a situation where the apartheid government, the, the National Party government, said this is separate development. There was, was no such thing. The whole structure of South African mining, of agriculture, of, uh, of um, manufacturing, mining, uh, agriculture, they were dependent on black labour. 
So the whites occupied some skilled jobs, but for a lot of the grunt work, they depended on blacks. They were damn sure they were going to prevent the blacks from having any say over work. They were going to keep their wages low. They were going to ban trade unions. They were going to deny them political rights in order to keep wages down, in order not to have to pay, for example, for pensions and aged care and health care and childcare for the children or the families of the working class. As much as possible, they would hire those off to the extended family groups in the homelands, uh, and the workers would just present themselves at the mine gate or the factory gate, hands for hire, eight in the morning, work 10-hour days, and then there was no uh, rights to them once they were injured or off sick or anything. So it was a totally capitalist project, which is one of minimising uh, the, the wages and living standards of the working class uh, and terrorising the workers because they had no political rights and their lives are ruled uh, by the cops. Well, let's start to talk a bit about the initial period of resistance to apartheid, um, you know, in 1948 till the 70s, maybe that um, period. Two of the main organisations that were part of this resistance were the ANC, the African National Congress, and the Communist Party of South Africa. Can you tell us a bit about their politics and their early strategy? Yeah, sure. Everyone's heard of the African National Congress. This is the uh, party of Nelson Mandela, Oliver Tambo, and all the other heroes of the anti-apartheid movement who are known around the world to this day. The African National Congress essentially was a party of the black uh, middle class intellectuals, lawyers, doctors, professionals, uh, and business people. That is where it had its origins. In fact, it had its origins, even more conservative backgrounds than that, uh, of being landowners and so forth. Um, 1948, Oliver Tambo, uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, and uh, various other uh, figures who become very important in the ANC break through in the ANC Youth League, and they appoint the organisation away from just polite lobbying of the uh, national of the uh, uh, racist government towards more activism and uh, campaigning by having stairways from uh, work, by having uh, protests through the streets, of burning passbooks, and so forth. Nonetheless, the project all the time. The African National Congress's project was not one of socialism. It was laid out in something called the 1955 Freedom Charter, which basically said the people should govern. But what they really meant was we want a Western-style parliamentary democracy. Uh, We want a situation where blacks will have rights. It'd be one person, one vote. Will there be freedom to organise, freedom to form a trade union, a free press, for school students to have rights, for people to get to vote, uh, to have health care, all these other things, all admirable, totally defendable, but they saw these coming about within a capitalist framework because essentially these people saw themselves as being the future rulers of South Africa, as in Nelson Mandela's case he was. Um, what they wanted to do was to eliminate the, uh, uh, um, the, the, the abhorrent, racially discriminatory features of South, South African capitalism, but try and remove those but to maintain the basic structures of South African capitalism. Now, they didn't make too much noise about that. They said, for example, that the, you know, the, the mines and the land shall go to those who work them. But that was more kind of to prettify the program. Fundamentally, it was about establishing a, a parliamentary democracy, just like they saw in Europe or, or the United States or Australia. Then there was the South African Communist Party, much smaller organisation, uh, founded in the 1920s, uh, which radicalised in the 1930s, uh, but 
uh, and began to break away from its origins, which is essentially was no more than a party of the white workers. By the 1930s, they began to recruit quite heavily amongst uh, uh, blacks uh, and become, you know, much uh, better on the questions of racial justice in South Africa to understand the fact there was a, actually a national liberation struggle in South Africa. That was part of the thing. It wasn't just about higher wages. It was about uh, black people being able to determine, you know, the future of the country as the overwhelming majority of the population. You know, 70% were African. Um, so that they, they did that. But you also have to say that they didn't want socialism either because the South African Communist Party, like the communist parties all around the world, starting in the 1930s, essentially were little more than instruments of the Soviet Union and Joseph Stalin. We don't have time to go into the long history here, but essentially Stalin and the Communist Party in Moscow did not want socialism in the West and by the West, they included South Africa. They didn't want socialism in the colonial world. They wanted an arrangement where post-independence in Africa, uh, post-racial uh, post governments would emerge in the African colonies uh, that would be friendly to the Soviet Union, but would not want to, which would not be socialist. Uh, they did not want the working class to take power in South Africa. Uh, they wanted a good relations with the post-apartheid South African government run by the ANC. Uh, and... In that situation, um, they, uh, the SACP, the South African Communist Party, took their orders from Moscow. In fact, because of the repression within South Africa, the South African Communist Party was very dependent on Moscow financially in terms of uh, support bases outside South Africa. Uh, the Soviet Union had quite a lot of influence in the 1970s in Southern Africa, uh, and they depended upon Soviet assistance for arms, uh, for bases to train guerrillas and so forth. And so the South African Communist Party um, basically backed the ANC's project of fighting for a parliamentary democracy, but not for socialism. And so, in fact, it had a whole program. They called it the two-stage program. They said, first of all, we have to have parliamentary democracy, get rid of apartheid, one person, one vote, a fair system, uh, totally supportable. But only after that's been in place for, the, you know, listen to, it could be a few months, it could be a few years, it could be a few decades, depending on who you listen to, only then can we move on to socialism. But what that kind of essentially meant was that socialism is never going to arrive. And that program, if, if you like, was really for a justification of what they actually wanted. They wanted a, a, capitalist, a multiracial capitalist South Africa. And all the kind of the, the ideological program about two-stage theories and so forth was simply just a, a rationale for their basic program, which is that we want to get rid of apartheid, but we want a, a capitalist South Africa, but which is nonetheless friendly to the Soviet Union, rather than just being in the clutches of, of London and Washington. Yeah, and as we'll talk about a little bit later, like they, these were actually debates um, in the South African workers' movement that not everybody um, was for deferring uh, the struggle for socialism. Um, well, but maybe we should now talk a little bit about the role of workers um, in the struggle against apartheid. I know in the 70s there was a, a new explosion um, of working-class struggle. Um, one important breakthrough moment that I've read a little bit about um, was the Durban strike in 1973. Um, can you tell us a bit about the strike and the changes that um, emerged later out of that um, uh, in the workers' movement? Yeah, the Durban strike in the port in 1973 and amongst textile workers, a place called Pine Town, just in the outskirts of Durban, um, was tremendously important uh, because it broke what had been a horrible period 
of retreat, repression, uh, and uh, a situation where the ANC uh, had all had to flee into exile, uh, whereas leaders like Nelson Mandela had been jailed, Walter Sisulu, uh, Oliver Tambo had all been jailed, uh, and other people had to flee for their lives to London or wherever, or to you know neighbouring Zambia or, or wherever. Um, and so the anti-apartheid struggle, which uh, surged uh, after the Second World War for a period of time, had been crushed by the early 1960s, and that's when Nelson Mandela was sent to prison. So you then had a period from the, let's say, 1961 or thereabouts to 1973, where the South African economy is booming, the South African capitalists are very confident about the system, the National Party government, uh, which has the overwhelming majority of seats, was riding high. Uh, but... What happened in that period is very significant because South Africa was attracting a lot of foreign investment at that time. Industries were beginning to boom. The South African economy was beginning to grow very rapidly. And so what that did was actually to create a large manufacturing industry and a lot of export-import trade. Uh, and what that did then was to start to build a working class beyond just agricultural labourers and beyond just mining workers. It began to create a factory working class, it began to boost the, the working class in the port cities like Durban, uh, like Cape Town, uh, like Port Elizabeth. So you began to see the emergence of manufacturing industry, bringing workers together in the thousands. So you begin to see the formation of the car industry, the steel industry, the chemicals industry. Now, to begin with, the workers are just, they're, they're often taken from the rural villages. So they're all a bit, you know, flummoxed by this change in their lives. But what the Durban port workers and textile workers do in 1973 is actually begin to organise and go on strike. And so what that does is it's like a, a jolt of electricity through South Africa. Because the working class is getting back on their feet. After years of defeat, uh, the workers are now beginning to put their demands on the bosses. And it wasn't a total smashing victory, uh, but nonetheless, the significant thing was that they, they stood up and they'd made demands. Uh, and they'd inspired people uh, that it was possible to fight. And it inspired people so that the working class could play a role in fighting apartheid. Uh, and it began also to fuse with another development, which is the emergence of um, white intellectuals beginning to get, get involved in the uh, multiracial trade union movement. Maybe I'll leave that for you to pursue. Yeah, cause it's my understanding that um, before and even, you know, sometime after the Durban strike, like it's just illegal for black workers to go on strike. They're not even recognised as workers. All of their unions... Um, well, they don't have unions. They're, it's illegal for them to to join or to form unions. But um, in the wake of this, there is um, the organisation of unions and um, uh, both black working class leaders um, and some white intellectuals. Some of them, I've I've read uh, Trotskyists and um, influenced by some of the struggles um, in uh, in Europe, like May '68, um, play some role in that. Can you tell us a bit about that? That's right. So what you see, '73 was a it didn't just carry on an escalating tendency from then. It fell back a bit after that. And then you see the next wave coming into play by the late 1970s. We'll, we'll talk about Soweto in a moment. But for the workers' movement, what you begin to see is um, the workers getting on their feet, as I say, and you also begin to see trade unions being formed uh, in the face of immense repression. And 
it's a peculiar, maybe not a peculiarity, because you see this in India as well and some other kind of relatively poorer countries where people who are not actually working in that industry, but who are maybe university students or maybe junior academics, who've got more freedom to organise, they're less repressed, they've got the ability to, for example, organise on campus. So you see a radicalisation going on on the campuses, uh, both amongst white and black students, um, but amongst some white students, because, because they're white, they have the privileges of being able to get scholarships to go to Europe or whatever. They have uh, maybe greater connections internationally to kind of pick up on news from international left-wing newspapers and so forth. This is many years pre the internet. Um, or they go and study in places in Sussex or um, Warwick or London or whatever, uh, and they begin to engage with a radical intellectual ferment that's underway uh, in Britain and Western Europe at this stage, when there's a whole uh, rise of revolutionary politics, particularly in Britain, with a focus on rank-and-file, working-class organising. And so some of these students, they come back to South Africa, uh, they've met some of the socialist organisations in Britain, uh, they've, uh, they've observed what the British shop stewards are doing in terms of uh, running uh, strikes, organising shop steward committees, uh, putting the Tory government to run, uh, you know, to flight. And so they come back to South Africa and they're based on the campuses and they think, well, what can we do as students and junior academics, what we can do is help to organise the working class because they've got the ability, they can roam around the city. They're not limited by passbooks about where they can go and what time they have to be home. So they can move around. Now, they're banned from the townships, but various, they have various ways of meeting up with black workers who are emerging, uh, who want to, who are looking for answers, who are beginning to organise. And so you have this incredibly productive um, fusion of... Um, a black workers' movement uh, stumbling around and uh, arising and beginning to use its new leverage from the fact of these big factories and massive foreign investment coming into South Africa, the big development of big um, uh, power generation, chemical factories, uh, coal and gold mines and so forth. And so these workers are, are beginning to find their feet and begin to fight and they, and they, they, they cross-fertilisation with these radical students who, because they're white, as I say, have greater freedom to organise. And so these white students often become the public face of the trade unions. And so you begin to see these new independent trade unions being formed uh, in the metalworks, in the ports, in textile industry, shop workers. Um, one of the interesting things about South Africa is that shop workers are actually one of the more powerfully organised groups of workers there. Uh, and transport workers, truck drivers, railway workers. And so you see these um, the revolutionary uh, training, if you like, these uh, academics and students have, have received um, and the theoretical development they've been able to do, uh, construct and also the fact they've had a good look at how South Africa operates and they've had interactions with Trotskyists and revolutionaries in Europe and they start to um, challenge the dominant narrative of the African National Congress, which is that the South African society, and then there's apartheid, and that apartheid is just this is just this kind of overlay on top of South Africa. And if we can just get rid of that overlay, then there's a basically healthy society underneath. What these intellectuals who began to throw themselves into the workers' movement argued was actually apartheid was inseparable from capitalism. 
that you could not get rid of apartheid without getting rid of capitalism because capitalism in South Africa depended upon the segregation uh, and oppression of black workers, specifically as black workers, and that South African capitalism could not survive without that uh, oppression of black workers. And so that meant you had this great intellectual uh, and practical and trade union uh, and worker-based um, uh, coming together uh, developing over the course of the 1970s and 1980s uh, to, um, which I should add here, actually, if I can, is also part of a parallel movement you see in South Korea, you see in Brazil, you see in Iran, you see in Turkey. It's a phenomenon of countries which are coming, which are industrializing very rapidly, which are seeing a great escalation in the size of their working class, uh, where you see a radicalizing student body uh, orientating itself towards the working class and, uh, you know, throwing itself into that struggle. Uh, and the workers, you know, if you like, looking for, you know, ideological answers, looking for theory. Uh, and so you have that, as I say, cross-fertilization going on. And South Africa, if you like, is part of that. The 1980s sees it. Poland as well uh, sees this uh, a whole period between the 70s and 80s in, in many different countries, as I say, from Iran to Poland to Turkey to South Korea to South Africa to Brazil, uh, you see this, uh, if you like, this worker-student engagement. Well, I, I want to talk a bit more about the, the debates um, in the workers' movement, particularly going into the 80s. But before that, you mentioned Soweto. Um, so along with this radicalisation uh, and wave of resistance by South African workers, there's also other forms of radicalization. So the youth re rebellion, um, like like the Soweto uprising, um, the township rebellions. Can you tell us a, a bit about some of those aspects of the struggle? That's right, because you have a whole Soweto is an acronym for Southwest Township uh, on the outskirts of uh, Johannesburg, uh, which is a, a, a place that owes its existence only to provide a labour force uh, for Johannesburg industry. Uh, but of course. You know, apartheid isn't just about keeping wages low. It's about oppressing black people as black people and asserting white supremacy. And white supremacy, particularly with the government that was in power from 1948 to 1994, which is a National Party government, which is an Afrikaans government. Afrikaans were uh, the, um, uh, the white settler population, if you like, of uh, Dutch origin, uh, who arrived in uh, South Africa in the 1650s, who were... Uh, a dominant section of you know the, the, the apartheid framework. Apartheid, of course, is an Afrikaans word. They insisted essentially on cultural hegemony over the entire population, essentially to try and wipe out black culture, black language, black history, uh, all that belonged in the homelands, which were just these kind of backward, you know, backwaters. And so in Soweto, basically what the government said, and in fact nationally, is that the language of instruction should be Afrikaans, not the African languages, not even English, because they basically thought English, some of the Afrikaans, thought they were, that was a foreign language as well. So essentially said to them, no longer will the schools, the teachers use um, English or African languages to, to instruct in, they must use Afrikaans. And now you might think, oh, it's just one language against another, what does it matter? But of course, for black people, that was essentially saying, we're going to wipe out, you know, it's a form of you know, form of genocide, if you like, to wipe out African culture amongst the African population. And so the school students said, no, we're not going to have this. And so they walked out of their schools uh, and they took to the streets in protest and they were met violently 
just like, in fact, protests had been. I didn't mention Sharpeville, the massacre in 1960, uh, which had crushed the, 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 the anti-apartheid movement back then. In 1976, when the police uh, took to the streets to shoot down the high school students protesting against the uh, comp compulsory teaching in Afrikaans, the students fought back uh, and they immediately launched uh, occupations, stay away from school. Essentially, they went on strike from school for a whole year. Uh, and they began to establish street committees, school committees, and so forth. And so they essentially just occupied the streets of Soweto uh, and established no-go zones for the police and the army uh, and engaged in running you know, pitched battles uh, with you know, catapults and uh, Molotov cocktails uh, with the uh, South African police and defence forces in their called Caspers, your armoured personnel vehicles, uh, with their rifles, their tear gas, their rubber bullets, and so school students are, are protesting, you know, uh, for uh, against Afrikaans, but of course for broader political rights as well, saying no more apartheid. Yeah, it's not hard to get a sense of the overwhelming solidarity that um, Black South African workers have with Palestine when you you know look at any footage from the Soweto uprising. It just looks like you know um, young people in Palestine during the Intifada throwing rocks at tanks. It's really um, I was I was struck by that. I'm watching some of the footage of that earlier today. Um, well, let's return a bit to some of the debates um, in the workers' movement. Um, so as we've kind of talked, touched on before, lots of workers um, actually saw themselves as fighting not only to dismantle apartheid but also connected to that to overthrowing capitalism and they saw the struggle for black, for black freedom as a struggle for socialism. Um, so the, the debates in the union movement uh, reflected this and um, maybe you could tell our listeners a bit about uh, who the populists and the workerists were and tell us a bit about the debates that emerged in the, in the union movement. Sure. So the African National Congress and the SACP did not really try to organise workers as workers. Uh, they basically, to the extent that someone was a worker, they were just drawn into a, a, what are called populist. Populist means all class. Everyone from the black street sweeper or the black mine worker or the black farm worker, all the way up to uh, black capitalists. And there were black capitalists. Um, everyone, in fact, other than the extreme collaborators of the apartheid regime could be part of a national movement to bring down apartheid and usher in a parliamentary democracy. So workers were all very welcome within part of that, but not as workers, just, if you like, as another force. So the ANC put very little attention into organising trade unions after, I'm talking here about the 1950s and 60s. Uh, there was an ANC trade union federation, but it was a rump. So in the 1970s, when you start to see the Durban port workers and the up, uprising, you see a new tradition become, become established, which is to say, um, partly because of that interaction I mentioned before between the radical intellectuals from the campuses and amongst the uh, black radicals in the, in the workplace, they kind of they looked around Africa. We're talking here about sort of 10, 15, 20 years after many black African countries became independent and thrown out their colonial masters. They said, well, look, in these countries, we had black liberation. We, we kicked out the colonial powers. Uh, we now have black majority governments. We have black presidents and black prime ministers and black generals and whatever. But actually, the working class is still being fucked over. Uh, either unions are banned or they're only allowed to belong to government-run unions, which like China's today, which is no union at all. And so what this current the so-called workerist said was that we want freedom in South Africa, but we want the working class 
both to lead that struggle and we want the working class to be beneficiaries of it, not just simply to provide the shock troops for a national liberation struggle, but to actually impose ourselves as being the masters of a new society. And so they were the so-called workers because they said, essentially, the African National Congress, they simply want a parliamentary democracy. Look at black Africa. What good is that for the working class? We want a situation of a socialist South Africa. Uh, so we want the working class to be making the running. Uh, and so populists, meaning everyone, all classes of blacks were supposedly united and fighting apartheid, which generally meant that the interests of the black middle class, the black capitalists came to dominate politically, which is what happened with the ANC. I mean, look at you know, Nelson Mandela, he's the son of a, an aristocrat, um, and the others, they're all lawyers, uh, all professionals and so forth. They were the kind of the, the social base of the ANC in terms of its driving force. And then you look at the, the uh, independent trade unions that get formed, the new unions that get formed in the 1970s, they essentially start from saying, no, the working class needs to look after its own interests. And the way we're going to do that is by organising the trade unions. And we're not going to get involved in nationalist politics. We're going to focus on having strong shop stewards, uh, union democracy. We're going to organise patiently from the bottom up we're going to have shop steward structures, job delegate structures, uh, and we're going to be we're going to liberate South Africa essentially just through strikes and general strikes and so forth. Uh, and so that was what you might call syndicalist politics, uh, meaning that it's kind of union struggles before all else, uh, and not to get involved in the big P political questions of you know essentially if you like to kind of wish the ANC away. Uh, to say, you know, we're not going to get involved with the ANC, we're going to just focus on the factories. So those were the two currents. Uh, and they uh, contested quite fiercely uh, over the new unions that were formed. The African National Congress initially tried to smash the new unions. They were formed in metalworks, the Transport Workers Union, uh, in, in, the coal, in the gold mines, uh, in a range of other industries, uh, textile workers, shop workers. They said no. These are outside the ANC. If they're outside the ANC, they are therefore saboteurs. They are not falling because the ANC and the SACP had a highly authoritarian approach to political organising, which is it would be the ANC and the SACP, or the ANC and the SACP doing the water carrying for the ANC. Uh, they will be the sole representatives of the anti-apartheid struggle. Anyone outside that. They just basically described as saboteurs, agents of apartheid, uh, Western imperialist agents, whatever. And so the workerists uh, organised their unions, but they had to fight tooth and nail to try to uh, maintain those unions, build those unions in the face of what was for about 10 years, uh, an attempt by the ANC to discredit them. Uh, ANC um, uh, organisations uh, internationally refused to recognise these new unions. They just kept holding up their old unifederation, which had about 100,000 members, whereas these new unifederations had hundreds of thousands of members and were the real dynamic and uh, dominant element in the unions. And so you had a fierce battle between these two uh, for which way was the anti-apartheid struggle going to go? Can you tell me a bit about like what were some of the strengths and the limitations on the on the left of the workers? So the workers were had some tremendously uh, positive elements. They said that um, apartheid is inseparable from capitalism. That we need to wage an anti-capitalist struggle. Uh, that we can't rely on African nationalism 
as an ideological guide uh, because it'll lead us just the same outcome as we've seen elsewhere in the African continent. Uh, and we need to organize workers at the base. The problem was, in the course of the 1980s, South Africa's, the South African blacks are not just oppressed in the factory. As we saw in Soweto, they're oppressed in the schools, they're oppressed in the townships, they're oppressed with passbooks, they're oppressed every which way. They're oppressed when it comes to healthcare, they're oppressed when it comes to national rights. Uh, they're oppressed uh, in terms of language, uh, in terms of the press and publications and education, university access, every, every, every kind of way. And so there was a national, the question of national liberation in South Africa in the 1980s. And you can't just simply answer that by saying, well, we need to strike for higher wages. So the ANC, that's their thing, national liberation. They say, we need to organise the whole population, the whole black population. And in fact, they said multiracial, uh, but in reality, it was mostly blacks, of course, uh, against the apartheid system. So we're going to smash apartheid. We're going to make South Africa ungovernable, they said. We're going to basically take on the police. We're going to take over the townships. We're going to establish uh, local committees to run the uh, townships. Uh, we're going to um, try as much as possible to dominate in the mine workers' hostels. Uh, we're going to... So they had a whole program, if you like, for South Africa uh, and the struggle. The workerists didn't have such a program. If you like, they had a vacuum where you needed a program. You know, if you just said to the, the workerists, okay, how are we going to smash apartheid? Their answer was strikes. But there's a, there's, there's a South African Defence Forces. There's a South African Police Service. There's a whole apparatus of the security services, the spies. There's a whole apparatus of the... Every government department going, there's the apparatus of the courts, uh, the public sector heads, you know, the torture cells in, in, in Johannesburg and in Cape Town. What do you do about these things? The ANC is saying, we're going to call mass stayaways, we're going to call mass demonstrations, we're going to take the fights of the police and their informers and the townships, we're going to take up rocks against them. And the, and the workerists, essentially with the unions, they said... They essentially have to say, well, look, you know, the, the union members, they, they, if you like, they both, they knew they had to fight at work, but they also knew they had to fight apartheid through political struggle. And so they had, if you like, both consciousnesses in their mind at once. They understood they were with the workerists because they understood you needed strong unions, you need to stand up to the boss, you need to fight for higher wages, you need to stand for, fight for better conditions at work, uh, you need to fight for dignity at work, not being called boy. Um, but you also needed to replicate that in broader society. And so workers had both those consciences in their heads. They wanted both socialism and they wanted national liberation. And the ANC, if you like, dominated the national liberation space. And so what happened was that the, um, the uh, workerist unions, the FASATU, the Federation of South African Trade Unions, which was the federation of these new um, independent unions formed, they more and more began to defer to the ANC struggle. And so they joined the stayaways, that is people staying away from work, uh, but they very much had to, because those were run by the ANC, it was the ANC making the political running. And so more and more what happens is that the workerists begin to collapse into, uh, either outright into throwing themselves into the SACP, the Communist Party and Stalinism start talking about two-stage programs, or they just by default went in that direction because it just seemed by the late 80s, the ANC was so hegemonic, dominating amongst housewives, amongst school students, amongst, um, you know, amongst uh, 
uh, in the rural areas, uh, in, uh, in every aspect of workers' lives that weren't necessarily directly at the point of production, the ANC was hegemonic, and the ANC had support internationally. The ANC had was everything everyone talked about internationally. It got financial and military assistance from uh, some European governments, but but by Russia and Russia's allies in Africa. Uh, and it seemed to be the ANC had become the main game by the late 1980s. Everyone knew who Nelson Mandela was. No one knew who the leaders of the independent unions were. And so the ANC just began to dominate that space. Uh, and the workers' unions started to, um, you know, the ANC, of course, was doing pushing in that direction as well. They were beginning to try and take over, the, you know, the independent unions. Uh, and when Kusatu was founded in 1985, that was uh, the Federation of Independent Unions plus the National Union of Mine Workers, which had come from a different tradition, as that new federation was founded with like 800,000 members, which is a phenomenal achievement in South Africa for a independent, for a non-racial union federation to get off the ground. Uh, it was ANC politics that increasingly began to dominate that federation to such a point that by 1987, that federation had embraced the ANC's Freedom Charter and essentially fallen into line uh, behind Mandela, uh, Tambo, Sisulu uh, and the SACP. So um, all of the movements that we talked about, you know, most centrally the workers' movement, also the rebellions in the townships, um, the armed struggle, other aspects of the struggle against apartheid do um, eventually put a a lot of pressure on the apartheid system. How does it actually start to break down? We have a series of things coming together by the late 1980s. One long-term thing is that the South African economy is in deep shit by the late 1980s. Its economy is pretty unproductive. It becomes very dependent upon protectionism and, and blocking out imports. It's very dependent upon importing machinery and investment from overseas. And then by the late 1980s, such is the pressure of the workers' movement inside South Africa, such is the pressure of the anti-apartheid movement internationally, and also you know, Wall Street companies looking at the fact that the South African economy is not going so well. You see the withdrawal of investment by big capital overseas, which obviously begins to hurt the South African capitalist class. Uh, You see the fact that internationally, like in the 1980s, when you switch on the TV, as soon as you come to international news, it's it's a scene of South African townships in flames. So the international capitalists and, you know, the big, um, you know, the think tanks that kind of help to guide policy for the international capitalists are looking at what's going on in South Africa. And I think this can't keep going. You know, there's got to be a resolution. There's got to be some way you can put the genie back in the bottle. There's got to be some way in which you can suppress this insurgent working class uh, and popular movement in South Africa against repression. Um, so you have a combination of the fact that increasingly within South Africa, the capitalists can see some need for change because their economy is going to shit. You can see the withdrawal of foreign investment and increasing sanctions on South Africa because of the international campaigns and the fact that the international capitalists can kind of see that South Africa is in, you know, in deep strife now. Another thing you see is that a lot of the countries neighbouring South Africa, which have been uh, redoubts of white minority power, like uh, so Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, like uh, N- Southwest, Namibia, then Southwest Africa, uh, like, um, uh, uh, no, not Botswana, but several other countries, Mozambique, uh, Angola, all those, all those by 1980 had, 
had 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 the liberation movements had won, and South Africa is increasingly isolated in that respect. And what that means is that it gives the ANC more bases closer to South Africa, but it also means that South Africa can no longer rely on even like a buffer of neighbouring friendly countries. The fundamental fact, though, is still the fact that the apartheid regime attacks and attacks the insurgent workers and students and, and, and popular movement in South Africa. They repeatedly declare states of emergency. The movement is so strong that it can at times push back and destroy their states of emergency. In 1987, though, there was another state of emergency which was successful by sheer political terror and police terror and the use of vigilantes to smash the, the resurgence in that year. The apartheid regime was able to put a cap on it but that everyone understood that you're putting a cap on a volcano, that you could keep things under control for a period of time and just terrorise your way to political quiescence, but the, the, the rumbling was still going on underneath. You could, you could not keep South Africa going like it had been in the 1970s. So they tried a combination of reform and repression, but they, tried if, but they would not agree to black majority rule. By the late 1980s, it was becoming clear they had to face up that prospect. So what you see from the late 1980s and going to the early 1990s is two things. You see the South African regime coming to understand that apartheid is doomed, that at some point they're going to have to accept very fundamental political change. They want to keep black majority rule or majority rule off the, the table as much as they can, they make as many concessions as they can short of that, but they try to avoid accepting that. And at the same, so they make a whole series of, they, they, they then release uh, Oliver Tambo, and they then release Nelson Mandela, and Nelson Mandela then essentially becomes the figure they can negotiate with. So from 1990, when Mandela's released, until 1994, when the elections happen, is you see the apartheid regime doing two things. It's both trying to limit what concessions it makes to Mandela and the ANC, uh, and it wants to, by you know, by diplomatic means, and all was unleash terror against the movement by both police repression, by army repression, uh, by torturing people, and by unleashing uh, right-wing black leaders. In particular, Gacha Butelezi, who died recently, thank God, who was the uh, tribal leader of uh, KwaZulu-Natal, uh, and uh, uh, Butelezi um, ran a political organization called Inkata, and Inkata essentially was uh, a Zulu nationalist organization which, uh, which had a following amongst many Zulus, not just in, in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, which is where Durban is, but also in Johannesburg in, 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 the, uh, mining, in the mining hostels. And essentially, uh, Butelezi drummed up uh, tribal uh, animosities, what you might call eth you know, ethnicities, against, they simply said that if there is freedom in South Africa, the Zulus will be oppressed. And so they uh, used a highly chauvinist, sectarian, uh, ethnically uh, supremacist approach to frighten Z Zulus um, to attack the, uh, the, the freedom movement. And so you saw Encarta uh, uh, backed all the way by the South African police, by the South African army, would stand by or even support them, 
just sending uh, squads of uh, armed thugs into uh, townships identified with ANC supporters, uh, into hostels uh, identified with ANC supporters, uh, and they were backed all the way by the apartheid regime. You know, the, the conservative press tried to say, that, oh, this is tribal warfare. No, this was basically the apartheid regime uh, using Butelezi, and Butelezi was well rewarded for this. He's basically made, you know, recognised as being the king of the Zulus and given all sorts of uh, perks as a result. Uh, and he was given, you know, political uh, priority. Uh, and they used Butelezi and Inkata uh, and equivalents in other areas too, in some of the so-called homelands, to terrorise the anti-apartheid movement uh, as much as possible to uh, you know, keep people's heads down. And there were thousands of people killed uh, by, these, um, by these vigilante movements. Uh, and so you had a situation where Mandela and the ANC, uh, people like Joe Slovo, the president of the ANC, are negotiating with the, um, the apartheid regime um, where all the time their supporters are being attacked in the townships, uh, slaughtered, you know, just you know, where they just go into, it's essentially it's a civil war in KwaZulu-Natal uh, and essentially to try and kill, you know, the, to, 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 to chop down the movement from its knees. Uh, and that combination of terror, uh, the combination of pressure from international capital, which which was thoroughly embraced at ANC by now as being the saviors of South African capitalism, because they thought they basically realised the Nationalist Party government could not hold things together. So they that's when you begin to see Nelson Mandela become a hero in the Western media. Like he was described as a terrorist for most of his life. All of a sudden, Nelson Mandela, Rainbow Nation, Nelson Mandela's a people's hero. That start to this period when the international ruling class and sections of uh, South African capitalists looked at the ANC to rescue the situation for them, to say the ANC has now said it's prepared to negotiate over a parliamentary democracy to leave the, the commanding heights of the South African economy in white hands. That was a fundamental deal. Basically to say that that was a deal, that 1994, that you can have black majority rule, the, the National Party government was ultimately forced to accept that against his wishes, but in return for which there will be no change to the fundamental economic structures of South African capitalism. The black workers will still be black workers, they'll still be oppressed, it's just you'll have a black president now. And that essentially was the deal. International capital could live with that, their investments were going to be safeguarded by the ANC, which vowed not to nationalise them. Uh, the apartheid regime, uh, the first government, in fact, was a uh, coalition government of the ANC and the National Party, with joint presidents of F.W. de Klerk, the National Party, and Nelson Mandela. And so the ANC went out of their way to make things easy for uh, the apartheid system, to remove the worst aspects of uh, the most abhorrent um, aspects of apartheid in terms of the political superstructure, the laws, the passbooks, the language, and all that kind of stuff, the homelands, that was all going to go. But the fundamental thing about what black workers do when they get up in the morning, they go to work on a shitty train to work for essentially a, a business that is overwhelmingly going to be white dominated. And there's a small thing, because the ANC is a party ultimately of the middle class and the capitalists, 
there's a few kind of uh, uh, openings uh, allowed for black capitalists to start emerging. So, for example, Cyril Ramaphosa, the current president, was at one time the leader of the National Union of Mine Workers. He then starts to become a senior figure inside the ANC and begins to set up his own, you know, gets adopted in the boards of directors and becomes a capitalist in his own right. Uh, and so you see that phenomenon. Some of the senior figures of the ANC and the you know, black capitalists more generally get uh, offered openings in white-run businesses and the boards of directors to become managers. Uh, and so you see uh, the black capitalists get something out of this tr- transition as well. They get to be on the big stage now. Well, given what we talked about earlier, that like lots of workers wanted to get rid of capitalism, um, not only to get rid of their... Uh, legal inequality and to win legal equality um but you know also to get rid of capitalism altogether was given the scale of the rebellion like was this possible and why didn't it happen so why was it then that um south african workers who had fought uh, courageously for years who'd formed independent trade unions who'd gone on strike who withstood states of emergency who'd fought against the police and the army who'd driven them out of townships why was it they were not able to go forward? Well, a simple answer was because two things, I think. Number one, the armed power of the apartheid regime was not shaken. The, the apartheid system was not just a few t- tens of thousands of people, like maybe Portuguese colonialism had been in Mozambique and Angola. It was a structure that had roots in society, particularly the army and the police force, overwhelmingly white, and particularly the army, uh, overwhelmingly white. Every white person in South Africa had to do military service, and even when they weren't in the army, they were reservists. That was never broken. So one reason why apart by socialism and revolution didn't happen was because the armed structures of apartheid were never broken because of the loyalty of the white minority population. But then the fundamental reason is because the working class movement did not have a revolutionary party uh, of any size sufficient to challenge the either the populists of the ANC who simply wanted multiracial capitalism and who could deal with the weaknesses of the workerists who didn't understand what you needed was not just a trade union but you needed a revolutionary socialist party with roots in every sphere of struggle not just in the factories but in the schools uh, in the townships in the hostels which could take up every political question not just the question of um, you know, strikes and workers' rights and so forth, but take up the question of the national question of South Africa that t- could take up, could deal with every political question that was around, uh, that could fight to raise the standards of the, work, the political um, mentality, the attitudes of the more backward workers, lift them up to the kind of standards and, and ideology of the more advanced workers who'd understood that South Africa needed socialism, that needed the, the working class needed to be organised independently, that meant you needed a revolutionary party. And so that step was never taken. There were small socialist parties in South Africa, but they were kind of combination of both too small and oriented incorrectly, that they couldn't build up a party that was needed, a party of hundreds of thousands of overwhelmingly black uh, revolutionary socialists uh, and that that step was never taken I mean we could go back to like 1960s to find out why the steps weren't taken then you couldn't conjure it up out of thin air in 1988 you know it would have to have been constructed well before and built up over you know 
real, realistically generations, probably from the 1940s and 1950s, such a party was not there. And so what it meant was that the politics of the ANC dominated. So when the so-called settlement, that is the deal where the apartheid, uh, you know, the white businesses kept all their, their money, uh, but the blacks got the vote, um, that was allowed to go through without being significantly challenged because there was no mass socialist organization that could, with roots in the factories, the roots in the mines, the roots in the schools and so forth that could organize a political alternative to say, no, we don't have to accept this. We don't have to accept that. We get the vote. The passbooks are all burned. We can live anywhere we want in South Africa. We can form a new union, but we're still working for the same shitty wages. We're still working for the same shitty boss. We're still, we can have a union, but we're still subjected to all, you know, capitalist booms and busts. We're still subjected to, you know, the anarchy of the world system pressing down on us and saying that South African workers can't have decent, decent living standards because we have to be internationally competitive and all the rest of it. You know, why are we not getting decent housing? Why the ANC's program was for housing for all. They just built little kind of shoeboxes for a few hundred thousand people. Nothing remotely adequate for what was needed. So you needed the socialist party to take up that whole program to lead the workers' struggle in a different direction. Well, Tom, one of the reasons we wanted to get you on is um, because with the genocidal war going on right now in Gaza, lots of people are you know, rightfully making the comparison between apartheid in South Africa and the experience that Palestinians live under today. What, what do you think the lessons from this struggle against um, apartheid in South Africa are um, for our current you know, context right now, what's going on in Palestine? Well, I, I think um, I say two things, I think, at least. First of all, is that in the face of incredible repression, in the face of hostility inter- internationally to their cause, a hostility obviously at home to their cause, to the lies that are told about them, whether, you know, so-called, you know, I mean, I'm a communist, but, you know, they were just described as being communists and terrorists and whatever. Nelson Mandela, for example, was on the uh, uh, United States State Department terrorism list until I think it was 2008. Uh, So every lie that was spoken about in terms of the South African apartheid struggle is now used against the Palestinians. Uh, And in the face of that, the Palestinians, like the South Africans, uh, the black South Africans in the 1970s and 80s have come out time and again to, you know, to protest, you know, to demonstrate, to fight for their rights, to say that just as we said that apartheid must fall in South Africa, people are saying we must bring down the Zionist regime in Palestine, that we cannot live in these circumstances. We cannot be, uh, we cannot be denied our national rights. We're Palestinian people uh, and we have the right to our own self-determination. So there's a tremendous parallel between them. Uh, and we know that Palestinians take tremendous heart uh, from that history of the anti-apartheid struggle. Uh, and uh, they also are inspired by the fact that the South African government, which I'll come on, go on to in a moment, at least is taking the, the Israeli government to the International Court of Justice. So they kind of see it at some level. They link that with, well, the South African government came about because of the anti-apartheid struggle. So they have a common history of struggle. But... So there's many ways in which I think the Palestinians look to the South African case. And, of course, Nelson Mandela and the ANC also looked to the Palestinian cause uh, and said that, you know, the cause of freedom is not complete without Palestinian freedom, uh, which is something that all those people who say that Nelson Mandela was a saint, they kind of conveniently forget that he said that about the Palestinians because it takes the thing from being just some romanticised view of the, the struggle in the 1980s to being actually what the real struggle is today in Palestine. So 
Having said that, talking about the parallels, I think we should also say that South Africa sends a warning sign to the Palestinian liberation struggle, which is that if you limit your horizons to simply resolving the national question, which of course would be a huge step forward in Palestine and one that we would all celebrate, but if you limit your horizons just to that and forget or put aside the fact that even if Palestine were free, whether whether it takes the form of, you know, somehow a genuine two-state solution or it is perhaps even even a multiracial single democratic state in the whole historic territory of Palestine. I don't think that's going to happen, uh, but without socialism, but so long as that remains on the terrain of capitalism, people will not be free because South Africa got rid of its homelands. It got rid of its apartheid walls. It got rid of its uh, denial of the votes. It got rid of its, uh, you know, um, uh, police uh, torturing trade unions and, and university students. It, you know, unbanned all the banned organisations. So all the democratic rights you can think of that Palestinians are fighting for today, they, of course, would be marvellous for Palestinians to win. But it doesn't alter the fact that even, as I say, even an independent Palestine um, so long as it's subjected to a capitalist system, so long as it's a nation state within the capitalist order of the Middle East and the broader world system, the same situation would befall uh, the Palestinians as has befallen the South African and black workers today, which is they have political freedoms uh, on a liberal basis, the right to vote, the right to free speech and so forth, but they have no real freedom because they have no decent housing. They have no real political rights to determine control at work about what's produced, about why is it there are still in South Africa enormously prosperous, privileged areas dripping with luxuries side by side uh, with uh, shanty towns, uh, where it's still the case even now, 2023, what's that, 29 years after the fall of apartheid, the relationship between the black maids going to work in the white lady's house is still there just as it was in 1994. So the lesson out of this, I think you say, is that the struggle for justice in Palestine has to be a struggle for a part of the socialist Middle East, because unless the struggle for Palestine is linked up with a movement for socialism, then even independent of Palestine, if all it's done is simply eliminated Zionist control, which, as I say, we'd, we would all stand up and applaud if it did that, but it would only be halfway or only a quarter of the way towards real liberation because it would still be the case that capitalism and imperialism would dominate the region. And instead of having, you know, an apartheid, you know, uh, Ben Gavir or Netanyahu in the cabinet, you would have Palestinian leaders, but they would just be as repressive uh, and just be as authoritarian uh, and exploitative of the Palestinian majority, just as people like Cyril Ramaphosa, the South African president, are today of the people, of the, of the mine workers who he himself once led. Tom, what was the impact of the international protest movement against South African apartheid? Um, you know, how, how important do you think that was um, both on the regime but also um, for the workers' movement? Well, the international movement, I think, was quite important. Um, it took a variety of forms. So, first of all, then you had the divestment campaign on American university campuses. You had pressure on American and European companies to pull out of operations in South Africa, uh, which also helped to destabilise the uh, South African capitalist class. 
you also had uh, cultural things, such as, for example, the boycott of um, South African sporting teams. Now, uh, people who might know something about the career of Malcolm Fraser uh, regard him as being this great anti-apartheid figurehead. Uh, in fact, most uh, people on the left hated Malcolm Fraser at that time, but he is known as being a champion of isolating South Africa uh, in the 1970s and as sporting teams. But the impetus for that actually came from uh, struggles by workers and students. And so, of course, uh, we had the uh, campaign in Australia against the Springbok Tour, which you referred to in your introduction. Uh, but it's a case that this kind of campaign uh, uh, where students, where workers boycotted the transportation, for example, of uh, South African goods by uh, black banning and boycotting the handling of these goods all helped to, you know, pinpricks at least uh, on the South African regime. Uh, and especially, for example, the fact that the Springboks were not able to tour internationally was seen as uh, something of a blow to the prestige of the Africana government at that time. But also, I think we should say, the impact of these things on the struggle within South Africa itself. When I was in South Africa, at, when I was in South Africa in the 1990s and talking to shop stewards and union delegates and anti-apartheid activists, they would always know about Australia. They said, your unions help free South Africa. He said, because we know about the uh, shipping boycott of South African goods. We know that you banned the handling of these things. We know that, for example, your unions help fundraise uh, for the uh, struggle by the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, we know that um, you know, people in political figures uh, took a stand against apartheid. Uh, and they said, we know, of course, that was part of the international movement, solidarity with the anti-apartheid movement. And so we felt even in the darkest periods, even when there were states of emergency, we weren't able to go out the streets without being followed, without the fear of being arrested, or even where we were in prison cells, when we were being exiled overseas. We knew that there were people who stood by us. So no matter how dark the period was, no matter how heavy the repression, we thought we were not struggling on our own. That international solidarity is with us and that more and more people are getting behind our campaign. And they found that a uh, great source of uh, moral sustenance uh, and courage and perseverance in a situation where, as I said before, so many governments were just writing off the anti-apartheid movement as being communistic, terroristic and so forth. They thought the people of the world are with us. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tom. Thank you, Chloe. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Red Flag Radio. This podcast doesn't make itself. We make it and with very shoddy equipment. For example, uh, Chloe has been using for the past... Uh, year or whatever, however long we've been doing this, sticky tape Kmart headphones, as we call them. They are sticky taped together. They barely work. Um, it does not help her test my microphone at all. So anyway, the point is, please give us some money. Please help us out. You can do that by becoming a Patreon to support the podcast. And with that, we can buy some new equipment. We'll sound better um, and improve the podcast. The other thing is, you know, the point of this podcast is to get socialist ideas out there and you can really help us by rating and reviewing the podcast um, and sharing it with the left-wing people in your life if there's anyone you know uh, who could benefit from or enjoy uh, some of the discussions we have on red flag radio please do make sure they get to listen to it
Yeah, and we put this podcast together because we want it to contribute to building a socialist movement here in Australia. It's part of uh, Socialist Alternative um, alongside Red Flag Newspaper. So really encourage listeners, you know, share the podcast, um, help support us on Patreon, but also get involved. You know, unfortunately, capitalism doesn't care what ideas you have in your head, um, on your own, in your room. Uh, You've got to join up with other socialists um, and fight the system. So Uh, As always, we'll have links in our show notes about how you can get involved uh, with socialists in a city uh, near you. And until next time, we have a world to win. (laughs) 